The following sermon was delivered in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I bet you thought I was going to say shalom. See, we have to change it up a little bit. You know, after about five, six times that we've been here, we don't want to be boring, you know? So, Boker Tov means good morning. So let's try it again. Ready? Boker Tov. Very good. Now you're ready for a trip to Israel. Anyway, uh, it's good to be here this morning. Um, my wife, Sandy, is with me as well, right over there. And um, I've been on staff with Jews for Jesus for the last 29 years. And we have, uh, Sandy and I have three grown children who, best that we can tell, they're all walking with the Lord. Praise the Lord. And um, it's really good to be back here this morning as well. I don't know how much you paid my, my brother, how much you bribed him to take my place here for the last several years. But uh, actually, Steve and I talked about my coming this morning, and he was really excited about the opportunity here. So anyway, this morning I've come to share a message with you called The Gospel and the Feasts of Israel. And I know you might be thinking, if you're like me, that I'm going to be talking about food. Because when we think about feasts, at least when I do, what comes to mind but food. But actually, I'm going to be speaking this morning about the festivals of Israel. And if you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me right now to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and verse 39 is our starting point. And we read, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Well, We know that Jesus is telling us that the scriptures spoke about him and that Moses in particular wrote about him. In fact, all the prophets spoke about Jesus, if you will. And, you know, I think that Jesus is pictured in the entire law and especially in the Feast of Israel. And that's why I'm here to share this with you today. In the five books of Moses, which the Jewish people refer to as the Torah or the law, there's a lot mentioned about the God-ordained festivals that the Jewish people are supposed to celebrate throughout the year. If we look in particular at Leviticus chapter 23, we notice that this chapter talks about a number of the festivals that are to be celebrated in their frequency. And I believe in your outline, in your bulletin, I think you might have a brief, you know, a a place to write notes. I want to give you a brief outline right now so that you can kind of follow along and you have something to do later on. You can review it. But the outline of Leviticus 23 that I want to give you is the first two festivals are Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And those are in verses 4 to 14. And that's followed by Shavuot, or better known as the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And that's in verses 15 to 22. Then we come to the fall festivals, beginning with Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets. And that's in verses 23 to 25. That's followed by Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, in verses 26 to 32. And then the last festival I'll be discussing, and that's in here, is Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's in verses 33 to 44. Now, these festivals occur throughout the the year. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Pentecost occur in the spring, while Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot occur in the fall. And it's significant that God emphasizes the fact 
that these festivals are supposed to be celebrated on a yearly basis. What could be the reasoning behind this command of God that the feasts are a portrait of who Jesus is, of what he would do when he came the first time, and of what he'll do when he returns? Now, I'd like to take a few moments and examine each of these festivals and their relevance to Jesus. And this is kind of an appetizer. Let me tell you, there, you know, we have books over there on the resource table that are on one festival alone. You know? So I'm just giving you kind of the appetizer here. Um, Passover was always very special to me as I was growing up as a boy in New York. <clears throat> in that my family and I used to travel up to the Bronx. Can you say the Bronx? Bronx, yeah, um, to visit my grandparents. And uh, what I remember about celebrating the Passover Seder, and I believe you had a uh, Christ in the Passover here a few years ago, was the feast. And now when I'm talking about feast, I am talking about food. My grandparents, my grandmother, my, my mom used to prepare wonderful Jewish delicacies like matzo ball soup, gefilte fish, chopped liver, you know, so the rest of it, you know, we observed the Seder, but, you know, that was what my focus was. But seriously, during Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there were two significant items that are to be used according to the law. The first is an unblemished lamb, one year old, and the other is unleavened bread. And these two items that focus our attention on two central themes, which are redemption and sanctification. God commanded the Israelites to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and to apply its blood to the doorposts uh, while they were in Egypt. So that if you remember the 10th plague, when the angel of death came upon Egypt, it would see the blood on the doorposts of the homes of the, of the Israelites and would pass over their homes. And that would be redemption, if you will. And the shedding of blood would provide that covering to protect the homes of the faithful Israelites, and they would therefore be redeemed. Now, in the New Testament, you might remember that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John chapter 1, verse 29. And I can see that God asked for a lamb without spot or blemish to illustrate the coming of the Messiah who would be sinless, he'd be without sin, and he would be willing to offer up himself as a one-time all-sufficient sacrifice for us all. And just as the Israelites had to, by faith, place the blood of the lamb upon the doorposts of their homes while they were in Egypt, so even today, those who want to know the Lord and want to be redeemed from our sins have to, by faith, apply the blood of the Lamb of God upon the hearts in order for us to be redeemed from the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And the unleavened bread, or as we say in Hebrew, matzah, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread represents our sanctification. And I'm sure somebody is saying, well, you know, Rob, how do you know all of this? Well, you know, in many places throughout the Bible, uh, how is leaven referred to? It's referred to as sin, isn't it? For instance, Jesus warned the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6. So we can see that these two festivals of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread go hand in hand with one another. First, we have redemption through the Passover lamb. 
and then a call for us to live sanctified lives, lives set apart for the Lord, lives without sin. And then the next festival mentioned in Leviticus 23 is Shavuot, meaning weeks in English, or as many of us know this festival, Pentecost. And the reason why it's called Pentecost, it gets the name from the Greek because Pentecost occurs 50 days after the Passover Sabbath, and Penta means 50. So it's a time of ingathering of first fruits from the harvest. And in traditional Judaism, this festival has come to represent the time when God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai as the new covenant, as a Mosaic covenant, as you will, um, basically like the Constitution of the United States. I'd have to say it was like the Constitution for Israel at that point. And if you look in your Bibles, you know, you'll figure out it was approximately 50 days from the time of the Exodus from Egypt to the time when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. So traditionally, that's when we say that the law was given to Moses. But there's a new significance in the New Testament as well to this festival in that the birth of the church took, took place during this very same festival. Remember in Acts chapter 2, this new covenant was ratified by the giving of the Holy Spirit. And this new covenant was ratified, but it was not to include only those faithful Israelites, but all people who place their faith in the Messiah of Israel, the Messiah of Jesus. And, you know, it's striking to note that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. And, you know, I'd like us to turn there right now to take a brief look at that. That's Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. And I'm curious while we're turning there, how many of you know somebody who's Jewish? That's what I thought. I seem to remember that about half the congregation knows Jewish people. Well, this is one you definitely want to write down if you're one to want to share the good news with them. So in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, it says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Which covenant was that? The Mosaic Covenant, right? Uh, To leave them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember the sins no more. So, very, very important fulfillment at Pentecost of this prophecy. Now, it's so fitting that as a tradition, the Jewish people read the story of Ruth in synagogues every year during this time. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, the harvest spoken of in this book reminds me of the harvest of those 3,000 souls that day in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Secondly, maybe you know this, but Ruth was a Moabitess. 
She was a Gentile by birth who chose to call upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, as, a, as her God. Um, what a beautiful picture of how Gentiles would one day come to call upon the God of Israel as their God. And interestingly enough, who is Ruth? Ruth is an ancestor of our Lord Jesus, isn't she? Then following Shavuot in the Jewish calendar is Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year. Now, those of you who know Jewish people, you probably are often thinking at Rosh Hashanah, what is it? It's Jewish New Year, right? Well, traditionally, that's what it is. But um, there's something to the religious year as well, in that biblically, the festival is a feast of trumpets. And the theme of this time is repentance. And trumpets are blown for a number of reasons during this festival. And I brought a few accoutrements up with me today. They're not silver, brass, or gold trumpets. They are what's known as shofarot, or ram's horns. I've got one in my hand. And let me see if I can show you what it sounds like. That's what a shofar sounds like. Um, It gets your attention, doesn't it? And that's the point of the matter. They're blown for a number of reasons. First of all, they're blown to summon the congregation or the leaders to assemble themselves when they met. Another reason was that the Israelites, when they went out to battle with their enemies, they blew the shofarot to remind God as if he needed a reminder that he was their battle commander and that he was going to lead them into the battle. And then thirdly, they were blown over the sacrifices and the offerings during the appointed feasts, probably so that people would understand their need to offer up sacrifices as a result of sin. You know, I'm so glad uh, this morning that you got to hear from Hebrews chapter 9. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Now, in synagogues, the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, known as the Akedah in Genesis chapter 22, is traditionally read every year during Rosh Hashanah. We remember Abraham's faithfulness to God and God's intervention and provision of that ram that was caught in the thicket to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. What a picture of a future sacrifice that God would make for all of his faithful through the greatest sacrifice of all time. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Messiah, Jesus. Think about that story for a moment. It's a Christology. You have God telling Abraham to take Isaac, his one and only, his only son, whom you love, is the way he puts it in Genesis 22. Now, did God have a memory lapse? Didn't Abraham have another son by uh, Hagar? Remember, but that was not the son that God recognized. Isaac was the son, the child of promise, born by miraculous means, I might say. So they go to Mount Moriah, and what are they carrying? Isaac is carrying the wood for the sacrifice. What does that remind you of, Jesus? Um, Isaac is the promised son born by miraculous means. Who does that remind you of, right? They go up to Mount Moriah. Abraham is faithful to God. He offers up Isaac as God commanded him. Knowing, and even according to rabbinic tradition, it's very interesting, 
The rabbis even say that it's possible that Isaac was resurrected from the dead. Okay? Because he didn't die. Or if he did die, if it was too late, then he would have been raised from the dead. Who does that remind you of? Very prophetic story, isn't it? And then I love it where the angel of the Lord says that I know that you fear God because you've not withheld my son, my only son, I mean your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This angel of the Lord is speaking in first person as though he's God. I wonder who that might have been, you know, right then and there. So it's a very prophetic story and so fitting that Rosh Hashanah, traditionally that story is read. And then between Rosh Hashanah and the next festival, known as Yom Kippur, there are traditionally the 10 days of awe, where the rabbis have commanded the Jewish people to remake yourselves by repentance during the 10 days between, between New Year's Day and the Day of Atonement. And they believe that God would hold the people guiltless for that fasting and by that repenting. That's tradition. That's not scriptural. Then this period culminates in Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And the themes of Yom Kippur are redemption and reconciliation. Every year, the Jewish people celebrate this festival by fasting and praying in synagogues in unison, confessing their sins as one body. But there's one element that is missing from this traditional yearly observance of Yom Kippur. It's a blood sacrifice is commanded by God in Leviticus 23. In fact, also in Leviticus 16 and 17, all about Yom Kippur. You can look at it later on. In fact, Leviticus 17, 11 states, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's a blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So the reason why that's so important is because the sacrifice was meant to show the people that there was a price to pay for our sins and that God would accept a suitable substitute. Again, this beautifully illustrates God's plan of salvation through his son who would offer up himself as an uh, all-time one-sufficient sacrifice for us all. And not only that, but just as a high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year to make this sacrifice for himself and for all the people of Israel. So Jesus, acting as our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, which we read about in the letter to the Hebrews, actually in chapter 7, came before the Father on our behalf. And in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 23, we see the fulfillment of, of this prophetic festival. And I want us to look at that one more time, okay? So Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 23. And we read, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the the ages to do away with sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly are waiting for him. Really great chapter, I love it. Finally, we come to the last festival mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23, which is Sukkot. Now, there are a number of other names which describe this time, such as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this festival is characterized by rejoicing. Rejoicing over God's provision, not only for the harvest, but in God's forgiveness after Yom Kippur. You see, my people celebrate this festival by building booths made of palm trees, uh, palm branches, wood and leafy branches. Uh, the interior is decorated with fruits, gourds, and vegetables. And you know, I remember when I was growing up in New York and went to synagogue, every year the adults of our synagogue would build a large sukkah on the rooftop of our building at Sunnyside Jewish Center. That was the name of it back then. And uh, I remember that after the services during those seven days or eight days of Sukkot, we would go up into the sukkah and we'd have a time of schmoozing and noshing. Now, you have any idea what schmoozing and noshing means? Okay. Getting together, that's right. Schmoozing means talking and noshing means what? Why does everybody seem to know that Yiddish word, right? Okay. And that, again, was a favorite for me. But seriously, and it's interesting to note that this festival has the greatest messianic significance. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, I've got a couple of accoutrements. I love that word, accoutrements. I brought a couple of symbolic items from Sukkot up to show you. The first one is what's called a lulav. It's made of palm, willow, and myrtle branches. Okay? And according to rabbinic tradition... Uh, this represents the spine of a person. This represents a person. Then we have what's called an etrog, which is a large lemon. It's a citron, actually a citron. And according to rabbinic tradition, it represents a heart of a person. So during Sukkot, we uh, go to synagogue and we wave the uh, lulav and the etrog up and down from side to side, Praising God to whom the four directions of the world belong. Now, that's tradition. Now, does that ring any bells with you? Is there something that happened before Jesus' crucifixion? That Palm Sunday? Remember how people greeted Jesus? They waved palm branches, they threw palm branches in the road, and they shouted out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What? You ever wonder why? Well, they were celebrating uh, this time of Sukkot out of sequence. It was a Passover time. So they were celebrating thinking it's happening. You know, the kingdom is going to be established right now. You know, it wasn't to be not the physical kingdom that they were looking for. And secondly, in looking at Luke chapter 9, which speaks of Jesus' transfiguration before Peter, John, and James, we have a very interesting reaction from impulsive Peter, who offered to build three what? Three shelters, three tabernacles, three booths, whatever you want to call them. Or in Hebrew, we say Sukkot. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
Maybe he was thinking about a passage in the Old Testament, Zechariah 14, verse 16, as being fulfilled before his eyes. You can look that one up later. But this, full, this festival has a number of implications for each of us as well. During the 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites lived in these temporary dwellings. We, know, we who know Jesus right now as our salvation and Lord are living in these temporary dwellings of flesh and blood, aren't we? Longing to live in that eternal home that he said he was going to prepare for us in John chapter 14, verses 2 to 3, where we would be with him forever. But we also need to remember the reason why the Israelites were made to wander in the wilderness for those 40 years. It was a result of their rebellion and unbelief in God and in his provision. You know, remember Moses for a minute. The people were grumbling, they were complaining in the wilderness, and they said, Moses, Moses, why did we leave Egypt? We had it all, everything we could possibly want there. We had food, we had the leeks, we had the water, we had this, we had that. They had short-term memory loss, you know. They forgot how bad they had it. And so they complained for water. Moses went to the Lord, and what did the Lord say? Strike a rock, that water would come forth from that rock. And sure enough, Moses was obedient, he did just that. And imagine how much water must have come out of that rock according to the scriptures, uh, had to be over 600,000 men plus families. And then later on, if that weren't enough, the people started complaining again. How often do we do the same stuff, right? You know, and so this time, Moses said, what am I to do? And God said, change the plan a little bit. He said, Moses, this time just speak to the rock and the water will come forth from it. Well, you know what? If you were like, if you're like me, it would have been hard enough to believe that water would come from a rock that you struck, but hey, speak to a rock. And so Moses, what did he do? He struck the rock again because he trusted in what had happened in the past. He wasn't trusting in the Lord's instructions. And because of that, he wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. But the good news is, from the transfiguration, we know that Moses and Elijah are with the Lord right now. But think about it. If God didn't spare Moses back then from entering into the promised land, then neither will he spare any of us from the promised land, from being able to enter into the promised land if we don't trust in his provision. So the idea is, what about those who have not trusted in the Lord's provision? Well, for them, both Jews and Gentiles, they'll have seen the promised land from afar like Moses. But because of their unbelief, they won't be able to enter in and to have the peace that God has so graciously supplied through the Messiah, Yeshua. It's so simple, yet so difficult. But that's why we have to trust in his provision. Let's bow forward to prayer. Father, we praise you and we thank you that while we were yet sinners, you sent Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah, to die for us. We thank you, Lord, for your plan of salvation that you laid out for us throughout the scriptures and throughout the feasts of Israel so that even today we're without excuse, Lord, and we know it. Let me speak to you another minute while your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed. Perhaps there's somebody here who has not yet trusted in Yeshua, in Jesus as your Lamb of God, as the living water that can refresh your soul, that is your salvation. 
Perhaps you're like that this morning. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, I want to challenge you this morning to do just that. And for those who are here who already know the Lord, and yet maybe not walking with him the way you, you once did, and you need to rededicate your life, I'd challenge you today to do that as well on this day. Father, thank you so much for this time that we've had together. And I pray that you bless the remaining time that I have to share with everyone, Lord. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.